This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and our podcast is there for you 24-7, wherever you get yours. Just look for Women at Work and Laura Zarrow, and you'll find us. And be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, as well as mine, at Laura Zarrow. For those of you who have been regular listeners, you may have noticed the attention we place on things that contribute to or diminish a woman's ability to shape and direct her own life. We've talked about the power of education, financial agency, and equal opportunity in the workplace, but nothing, nothing shapes our lives as much as the power to control our own fertility, which is why I am so honored to have as our guest today, a woman who has spent her career fighting for reproductive freedom. Paula Avia Guillen is a human rights lawyer and the executive director of the Women's Equality Center. They strengthen the work of organizations in the U.S. and Latin America through grants, policy, and communications campaigns, along with rapid response operations. As executive director, Paula serves as the principal strategist and leads WEC's campaigns to include efforts to end the total abortion bans in El Salvador, the total emergency contraception ban in Honduras, and support the movement to legalize abortion and expand women's rights in Argentina, Colombia, and Mexico. Prior to working with the WEC, Paula was at the Center for Reproductive Rights, where she created and implemented advocacy strategies in complex political arenas, such as the Organization of American States and the UN. Paula, thank you so much for joining us on Women at Work. Thank you so much, Laura, for the invitation. I am very excited to be here. There's so much to talk about with everything that's been going on both in Texas and in Latin America. So I want to jump in to dive right into this question that I can't wrap my head around. Why is it that Argentina and Mexico are decriminalizing abortion just as the United States has enacted the most restrictive law in 50 years? It feels like, you know, there's, a you know, we're not that far apart geographically, yet socially, conceptually, legally, we're on different planets. We What's are in different on? planets. I think that it's not the one day the lawmakers in Argentina wake up and say, oh, wait a second, women's rights, that's a thing, we need to go for it. It, it, it is actually the result of uh, a multiple approach strategy. In one hand, we have had a movement that for the last 20 years has been fighting so hard to make sure the lawmakers and everybody in a position of power recognize that women's control, women's ability to control their own bodies was fundamental uh, if we wanted to talk about the real equality, if we wanted to talk about uh, real democracy. And that was just huge for them. And the movement mobilized millions of, of people to the streets and became a mainstream movement. And we have seen one of the largest mobilizations um, that it, it has ever happened in the world around uh, uh, reproductive rights coming from Argentina. But on the other hand, we also have seen the data. 
Latin America has been uh, with laws that restrict abortion access for over 20 or 30 years. And during that time, we have been able to collect different pieces of data. And what the data shows us is one, restricting abortion laws doesn't reduce the number of abortions. The only thing that does is to make them unsafe. And it creates a two-class system, one in which women with means can access abortion care because they are able to travel to another country to find a medical provider, to be able to buy very um, medicine in the black market. They super high in price. And on the other hand, women who have no access to those privileged are forced to figure out with Mr. Google how to have a self-managed abortion. And that reality has really awakened a lot of Latin Americans in recognizing that just simply those laws are ineffective, inefficient, and it just doesn't serve any purpose except trying to uh, force women into unsafe abortions. And I think the difference in the United States is that we have 50 years of a law that has been protecting these rights. So we almost have almost a one entire generation that has never seen a war without road. They, we don't know what it is to live in the United States. If you are under 50 years or even under 40 years, you have no idea what it is, what it means to actually be living in a country where the government is trying to control your body. It's trying to tell you what to do. And so we haven't had that, that momentum of awakening, uh, of going to the streets and claim our bodies. And we also have not seen the statistics of maternal mortality and maternal morbidity and how it really creates this second class system. So I, I think that once the United States starts seeing this data, they are going to realize they devastated impact that has these type of restrictive laws, but they just haven't seen it yet. So I want to unpack some of this to make sure, because there, there's a lot in here that's really important. So one is recognizing in terms of the differences between these two, but what's happening in the US, United States and what's happening in Latin America is that in the US, basically any woman who is within her year, her kind of reproductive years, you know, mm -hmm. post puberty and pre menopause yeah. would have no real life experience of abortion being illegal in the United States. Exactly. exactly. And so and our, like we don't know the stories <laughs> of our peers or even in, in most cases, our mothers having to go through mm -hmm. this. And then in Latin America, what you're explaining to us is that for 20, a solid 20 years, if not longer, abortion has been roundly criminalized. Yes. Yet the number of abortions has not been reduced. That is, for me, the, the biggest data that is up there. In the contrary, in the countries that have the higher restrictions, it goes up. Because usually when you try to restrict abortion, and the same people who advocate for laws that restrict abortion are the same ones who advocate for the laws that actually will reduce abortions. There is a way to reduce abortions. And it's a combination of public health policies that it combines access to contraception, free, let's free the pill once and for all so that women can have access to contraception uh, without having to go to doctors and insurance. Uh, in majority of Latin American countries, you just go to the pharmacy and be able to access However, in some countries and in rural areas, um, accessing in terms of like actually going and receiving the medication is very hard, 
then um, there is uh, also access to emergency contraception. Then you need to have access to abortion care and post-abortion care. And then you need to have uh, uh, some level of protections around maternity leave and paternal leave. And those type of policies are the policies that end up reducing uh, unwanted pregnancies. And when you have a reduction of unwanted pregnancies, you have a reduction of abortions. Okay, so you there's a lot in what you just framed for us. <laughs> um, and also a particular irony. So what you described as... What are the elements that enable, so I want to reframe them with slightly different vocabulary, see if I'm catching this as a way to help also make sure I get it and that our listeners are getting it. So, Absolutely. So what you're describing are the various policies and practices, some medical, some related to employment, some related to healthcare policies within a country and laws that together, um, actually, even if we keep them out of the legislative realm and just keep it about policy and medical practice that together create the, the system that we need for women to be healthy from the moment that we think about um, either preventing contraception or going all the way through to having a healthy pregnancy and protecting maternal well-being on the other side of the pregnancy. Absolutely. And I think that one of the, still one of the facts that surprised me the most is how we just try to uh, ignore the data that is out there. Like this is not data that the movement is creating. I am talking about uh, the World Health Organization, the Pan American Health Organization. I am talking about independent institutions, the World Bank, that produce data of how beneficial it is for women to have access to all those policies in terms to control their pregnancy, in terms to reduce unwanted pregnancies, and also in terms to decide their own future. And that for me is something that's so beautiful about the decision that Mexico um, made uh, uh, a few weeks ago. And it was the Supreme Court has used some language that for us activists is, is, is like music to our ears because it's recognizing that life and protecting the right to life needs to include protecting the right to a woman to choose what type of life she wants to have and the projection of her own future. And that is something that we have been saying for a very long time and it always has been ignored. And I think that reclaiming life as something that is part of women's rights is something that uh, is fundamental to understand this issue. And it also takes away a lot of the... Um, the other side arguments, uh, because their laws are not about protecting anything. Their laws are really about controlling, controlling our future, controlling our life, controlling what type of life and how we want to live about it. And that is just the real, right. <laughs> the real history behind. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132, and I'm your host, Laura Zaro. My guest is Paula Avia-Gijan, and she's the Executive Director of the Women's Equality Center. So, Paula, one of, a couple of the things that we talked about a moment ago, um, you started with the question of public health policy. I find, um, I, can't, I can't ignore this, what I find to be a just disgusting irony, which mm -hmm. is, at least in the United States, the same people who are creating a public health crisis by not wearing masks, citing 
their right to the autonomy around their own body, even if it causes the lives of other people who are already born, are the same people telling women that the women can't control whether or not they have a pregnancy, where it has no bearing on them. It is a hypocrisy, um, and it really is. It, it just reveals the truth about what is behind these all total abortion bans. And um, they don't seek to protect, they seek to control our bodies. Because why? Why they want control of our bodies? Because if we are the ones who control when, how, and if we want to have a pregnancy, that means that we can decide uh, if we want to go to college or no, we have more autonomy of what type of work we want to do. We will actually be able to grow if we wanted to be presidents or CEOs of companies or if we want to expand. But we have to recognize that pregnancy and at this stage, there is not the desire for us. It creates a burden and it creates a burden, especially in a country that is one of the few in the world that still doesn't have federal pay family leave. That for me is something that is absolutely outrageous. I I, I go to countries <laughs> that have a lot of poverty and they still have they still at least have 12 weeks leave. of fa- pay family so, leave. Paula, I want to um, boil something down if you could. Um, when we, because I feel like language and vocabulary are part of what weaponizes the issue and can help bring clarity to the issue. Like we know that calling, you know, pro-choice versus the right to life, like there are communication strategists behind those concepts (laughs) and they're meant to manipulate people on both sides of the debate. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about um, reproductive rights as human rights, and we talk about how the decision of when and when to have children, how many children to have has this profound profound effect on a woman's life, on her family's life. Can you help on one hand, um, and especially in the context of women in the workplace, you know, we, it's, we talk about the way that we can maximize opportunities in our lives, but this issue isn't just about maximizing opportunities for people who are already privileged. Can you help bring into high relief what it really means for women who do not have, who are not affluent, who do not have access to health care, who do not have partners, the women whose lives are irreparably changed mm-hmm. for the negative um, by being forced to have children that they didn't want. Yeah. I'm going to try to tell you a little story because I think that sometimes that helps us bring the context. And it's a real story. Um, her name is Imelda, Imelda Cortez. Imelda was 12 when she started being um raped by her stepfather. Uh, um, Eventually, at the age of 17, she gets pregnant. Uh, She doesn't, she lives already in a very rural, vulnerable, poor area of El Salvador. And uh, when she gets pregnant, uh, she doesn't understand what her pregnancy is. She goes to a doctor and the doctor also like doesn't do a good job of explaining the consequence of what is happening in her body. We are talking about somebody who has never had agency in her entire life, ever. Imelda then, um, because of the total abortion ban in El Salvador, is not able to have an abortion, even though she doesn't want to do anything with her pregnancy because it's the result of abuse and rape for over uh, a few years. Um, 
she gives birth uh, uh, in a very tragic situation, in a, a type of a strategic emergency at her home, like not without telling anybody. She doesn't know what is happening. She passed out. She starts bleeding. She almost dies. She arrives to the hospital. And in the hospital, they start accusing her of having done something to terminate her pregnancy. And uh, Imelda goes through a process of a trial and then uh, eventually we are able to prove her innocent and a judge just recognized they absurd that she's even going through this process. Today, Imelda is going to school, to university. Today, Imelda is escaping the trap of poverty because she was able to have a future. She decided uh, her child survived and she decided to give it an adoption. But she almost died in the process of giving birth. If if that has if she had, had received the support that she wanted, if she had been able to terminate her pregnancy at that time when she wanted, she will have saved so much trauma, and she will mm-hmm. have been able to decide her own future at that moment. But the system fell in Melda in any step of the way, right? Because she was traumatized. As she's a survivor of sexual abuse, yes. A, yes. A, a sexual abuse, a pedophilia, yes. not to mention an unwanted pregnancy and a traumatic birth. Yes. And then if the nonprofits, they rush to the hospital when they were notified of Imelda's case, don't show up. If our partners don't show up, I don't know what it would have been in Imelda's future. So it was thanks to the work of advocates. But do you know how many Imelda's who exist that we never that never make it to the news? We don't know about those cases. And the law in Texas is going to be a case in which Imelda or any Imelda in Texas will not be able to access abortion. And her entire future is going to change from there. And I think that that is the level of impact. There is a very powerful study from um, UNFPA in El Salvador that talks about the social and the economic costs of teen pregnancy and unwanted pregnancy in girls from 10 years to um, 19 years old. And the different paths that a girl who can decide when to get pregnant or can decide if she wants to carry out a pregnancy in terms of her future, it just means the difference between being in poverty the rest of her life or actually being able to maintain herself and achieve financial autonomy. It is so fundamental how it can change so much the future and not only of a girl, but sometimes of that family. Because in many of the cases, that woman, that girl, by going to a school, by being able to have a job that has that gives her a little more of um, and money, she's able to maintain her family. She's able to help her civilians because that's not the reality of those families. So it's literally life-changing how choosing when, how and if you want to become a mother can have an impact in somebody's future and in society as a whole. So, by the way, in case you just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarin. I'm talking with Paula Avia-Gijin. She's the executive director of the Women's Equality Center. So, Paula, this kind, making real these stories of what happens when we can't control our own fertility, it's humbling and it's incredibly important. Um, and that it's part, it also cannot be separated from access to birth control. Um, Because as you noted in the beginning, that the same 
um, activists on that side and policymakers who are really criminalizing abortion are also rendering birth control unavailable, functioning, functionally keeping women in poverty and as Absolutely. victims throughout their reproductive lives. Absolutely. And that is one of the things that still chokes me that people doesn't get. And is um, when you do, sometimes you do interviews and, and the answer for many people in the middle, you know, that they are no against affairs like, but why you don't advocate for sexual education? Why you don't advocate for access to contraception? And I say, wait a second, I do advocate for those. I want it all. That's what we want. Right. That's we the whole point. So that, point. and actually going back to the data that you shared with us, abortion, criminalizing abortion doesn't reduce the number of abortions. It simply produces more illegal, unsafe abortions. Exactly. And the result of that is the increased rates of maternal morbidity and maternal mortality related with unsafe abortion. Because when a woman decides or anybody with reproductive capacity decides that they want to terminate their pregnancy, they are going to do it. The fact right. that it's legal or no is not going to change. This is not like an entertaining, this is a difficult, physically and emotionally painful experience. It is. And it is something that, uh, uh, like nobody decides to get pregnant because they want to have an abortion. That right. just doesn't happen. It's never it the end like, goal. It's never, never, <laughs> never, never, never. And also there always will be reasons why abortion, even when you have all the male's amazing policies in place, why abortion is necessary. Because contraception fails, and that's just a reality of life, right? Second, because there is unfortunately still super high rates of sexual violence. Mm -hmm. And that is something that's absolutely out of our control there because there are also always many med medical reasons why even wanted pregnancies need to terminate in abortions right. because there are reasons in which you put your life at risk, in which maybe the pregnancy is not going that well. Um, I became a mother a year ago and knowing sometimes too much about this issue creates a lot of anxiety when you are going through the process <laughs> yes. yourself because all the time I was thinking in the scanner, all the multiple things that could go wrong with a pregnancy that was so unwanted. I actually had already had a miscarriage uh, a few months before my, my successful pregnancy. And all this time I was thinking, oh my God, thank God I live in a, a state where if something goes wrong, I will be put first. It will be my husband and my choice. It will not be nobody else's choice to decide what I wanted to do in a difficult moment. I was lucky they didn't have that difficult moment, but that should not be based on luck. These are rights. They should not depend on right. where you live. And we know that speaking of trauma, um, miscarriage is its own traumatic experience. There was another situation in Chile where there were faulty birth controls, I think were distributed by the government, um, that resulted in hundreds and hundreds of unplanned pregnancies um, that resulted in, talk to me about what happened to those women and what happens in a context of such um, cruel legislation and bans. It's it's really uh, one of the most scary situations that a woman can say can can face sometimes, and is to believe that you are doing everything right, you are taking the pill, you are doing everything that you are supposed to do according to the standards of this society in order to avoid getting pregnant, 
And then all of a sudden you're pregnant. And then you realize there's about 200 women that also are pregnant. And it's practically there was a uh, um, um, counterfeit um, um, me- pills that were being distributed by the government. The government knows about it and it issued a warning in their website. It was just like the no warning, but we issue a warning. Like nobody saw it, nobody knows. And as a result, the life of these women are altered forever. Uh, It's really devastating in a country that will not allow a woman to access abortion because the government gives them counterfeit contraception. But that should be enough reason to access an abortion. You are doing everything that you're supposed to do according to the same government, and you cannot do it. Now, um, those cases are going to be litigated, and uh, I, I think they eventually that is going to get to a, a, a different resolution, but their lives are going to be altered forever. Fundamentally altered. Forever. Is the government going to provide childcare so that they can continue to work, replace their lost wages, augment insurance? And I think that that's part of the litigation. But even if all of that happens, for those of us who know what it is to be a mother, you know that it's... It's your life just changes. You are not the same person before and after. Everything just changes. And I think that uh, even if the government is able to fulfill a lot of those obligations, there is uh, there is no going back. Now, look, we don't do mothering. We are mothers. In the first half hour, you were sharing a lot with us to help us understand the dynamic behind uh, criminalization of abortion, both in the U.S. and in Latin America, and the way that it's impacting women. You're leading teams that are working to help women everywhere. So talk to me first about for the women who now live in Texas, whose futures are going to be irreparably changed by this law. What options do they have and how are organizations like yours mobilizing to help them? It's a very hard situation when you are working in the front lines of an issue that is so controversial, that even though I believe it should not be controversial, but it is, an issue that is so politicized, um, your own body is on the line. Uh, you are attacked, you are constantly attacked, and um, you also do this work carrying a lot of weight on the lives that is going to have an impact. Um, so I think that a lot of the work that we do is trying to support uh, the organizations who are in the front lines, either from Texas to Argentina to El Salvador, so that their, their stories make national news, that their voices are being heard. Because the only way that we can change realities is if we are able to hear their stories, hear from them, hear from those who are impacted the most, put them in front and center. But many times, uh, at a more personal level, you carry those stories with you. You you go to bed with them. You go to bed thinking on that girl they maybe could not access abortion today because it arrived to a clinic and they told her there was seven weeks pregnant in Texas. And how we can try to connect her with an abortion fund that could help her to travel to another state on flying her somewhere so she's able to access abortion. Like it's impossible to disconnect that this is personal and that this that you decide by doing this work uh a political act. And, and and yesterday I was thinking that sometimes um, when you feel that everything is lost, the biggest resistance that you can have, the biggest act of resistance that you can have is to have hope. Hope this change can still happen. Because the moment that you believe that everything is lost, you lost. 
But mm-hmm. as long as you believe that there is a still possibility, there is a still hope, then you can resist and you will figure out one way or another. So that for me is the message for women and girls and anybody of reproductive capacity and anybody who is in the front line in Texas. We are going to survive as long as we believe that we are stronger and that there is hope and that there is possible. That's all we can do right now. So, Paola, the way that you put that is so moving and I think incredibly important. So one is just abstractly the idea that um, if we can feel like we have agency even to help others, it can help us sustain hope, which we need for our, we need collectively and we need individually. You've been in this fight for a long time. Um, you've devoted your career to this. Um, talk to me over the years about how you not only sustain your own hope, but create a culture within your own team to support the people who are doing this work with you. Um, I started working on this issue. I started first as a general human rights attorney, and then I started narrowing down into this issue because I believe that this issue is at the core of equality, it's at the core of democracy, it's at the core of women stop being second-class citizens. And if we don't have that, we couldn't achieve all. And I felt there was a system of oppression what what we needed to fight. We needed to fight against a system that was telling us that we needed to be controlled by the government, that the government needed to make decisions by uh, for us. Uh, but then when I started working on this issue, I realized that some of those systems of oppression were also being replicated in the workforce. Then not just because we are women leaders, it means that we are not replicating the same systems that we are supposed to fight for. Um, because uh, for many women to become uh, presidents and CEOs and like big leaders and big shots in government and organizations, <laughs> right? They had to replicate the patriarchal oppression system in order to be successful. But when they got into power, they didn't realize that instead of keeping that same system, uh, they needed to change it. So for me, it was very important that we didn't replicate those values the moment I had the opportunity to lead an organization. They, uh, we have an organization that is very unique, not only the type of work they does, but also in the way that we do work, where we are trying to make sure they, that we really are living the values that, that we are set to, to, to fight. And, and it's not easy. So much time, so many times I think it's so much easier to just become a corporation and just follow the standard procedures because that's the book that we know. We know how to do that. We know how to become hierarchical. We know how to become a, bureaucrat, a, a bureaucratic organization. We know how to become and put layers and layers and layers because that's what we know. And that's how many nonprofits still run. We don't know how to be different. We don't know how to center our employees in the middle of the difficult conversations. We don't know how to have transparent conversations among employees because we still believe that not everybody has the same access to information. We don't know how to be flexible. And I think the pandemic really put us many of our values in, in, in play. Like we needed to make sure that our employees and, and the people in our team, they have kids. They couldn't work full time. 
That was ridiculous to expect right. them to work full time. It just wasn't possible. But we could not just say that they were going to pay, get paid less because that was also unfair. So how we could accommodate and a schedule that will allow them to do what they needed to do and still be parents and don't go crazy. How we can, as an organization, don't put extra burden on them, but in the contrary, allow them to to be the best employees that they could be, which means supporting them in their life beyond work. Um, and especially with an issue they so attack where we're, we're literally are putting ourselves um, on the line many times. I think it's so important internally, we are able to create a culture that is the culture that we want every woman to live in and not the culture that we are trying to fight <laughs> and trying to eliminate. So talk to me more about what that looks like, because as you described, you know, not replicating a patriarchal system of oppression Mm -hmm. and instead having um, what the opposite would be, would be a much more feminine, inclusive um, way of leading and working together. Can you give me some examples of what that looks like in day-to-day life? Because it's conjuring ideas that I was first introduced to reading Gloria Steinem's book like uh, of her stories from the road. Absolutely. Uh, so one thing is the most important is recognizing that family can come in different ways. Then know everybody uh, wants to uh, uh, have a child and therefore we need to support all the ways of family. And that means specifically that uh, when we talk about flexibility in the workplace, usually some of the organizations that have uh, adapted these flexible methods goes only to parents, right? But no, we are being a lot more inclusive to make sure that it involves anybody who is taking care of of their parents, because usually that falls also on women. Women end up taking care of their older parents, or even of siblings, or even of a grandmother. Um, they sometimes family become our pets. So they, if somebody has an emergency with their pet, we are not treated as less of important as if it was an emergency with like an, a person. How we can support all types of families and the family and the life that you want to choose is something that's important. Flexibility. This is a, a, a fight that, that I still don't, don't have yet because my kid is only going to be a, a year old right now. But uh, the time between how work schedule doesn't match the school schedule, mm-hmm. that is just ridiculous because that just puts an extra burden on those parents. So how we can have flexible hours in what it will be convenient for, for any employee to work, um, not depending on you need to be in the desk from this time to this time, but like trusting our, our employees, how our decision-making a process is not a top-down approach, but it's a collective decision-maker. It's still with leadership. We have, a, we call it a consensus by default. So yes, I am <laughs> the default when we don't get consensus, um, but we try to reach consensus. We try to have those conversations. Um, so those are like some of the steps that are very concrete. We have the hard conversations. We are able to have very difficult conversations internally, uh, even about like our hiring process because our own tendency sometimes it goes straight to go for the Ivy League schools. As soon as you see an Ivy League, you're like, oh <laughs> yes, we want that person. But we are questioning ourselves into try to look for other type of experience. Maybe not the Ivy League, but wait a second, this person work 
at the same time that was doing college was working. Clearly, this show a different type of skills, and maybe that explains where their GPA is not on the top of the class. They come from other different backgrounds. How we value that in a different way, because that also impacts the type of people that we have instead of just going for the easy round that we just want everybody with a super high GPA and like uh, all <laughs> Ivy League credentials. So it's like, being conscious of the system that we live in and being very conscious of every decision that we make collectively and have an, an accountability system among all of us. Uh, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarin. I'm talking with Paula Avia Guillen. She is the Executive Director of the Women's Equality Center. So, Paula, as you're talking about this, and I'm thinking about the, the, the pattern that this creates, what this adds up to, what's the dynamic behind um, what really is a much more feminine way of leading and how integral it is to the work that you're doing. Um, it sounds like one of the things that you've done is rejected the idea that you control your employees and that they are units that work for you. That sounds like the first thing. The yeah. second is that you are a team and you support each other. Mm -hmm. The hierarchy isn't as important as the cohesiveness mm -hmm. of the team. Um, and that also you are not determining what relationships and what emotional needs are more important, that you're Absolutely. honoring the emotional commitments, the definition of love, and the things that each person on your team needs to be whole and happy. Am I getting it? Oh my God, you put it in, in beautiful words. I kind of want to save this recording to just transmit it to all employees. But yes, that's what we are trying to do. And we are doing this also. I, I always say this, but it's not only because we believe it's right, also because it is the smart thing to do. I have in my team some of the cleverest, more smarter, more creative people who give them all when it comes to work, who will never tell one day, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, it's, it's after seven o'clock. And no, when the time comes, when we were trying to push the Argentina bill, it was December 30th. <laughs> the office was closed and everybody wanted to work. And I was trying to tell people, no, let's just have a select team. And everybody was like, are you kidding me? No, we are all doing this. We are all invested. So that's what you also get when you invest in your team and is that your team will have your back. When you're centered their issue, this is stop being about me, stop being about them. It becomes about the people that we are helping the most. And for them, we are willing to do it all. So now let's talk about how you help the amazing people on your team. How do you cultivate them as leaders? How do you mentor them over time? Because you're clearly creating a workplace culture that yes. engages them, makes them feel respect, and clearly um, makes it so that their passion drives them, not fear. Certainly not fear of you, fear of the outside world, yes, maybe. Yes, yes, yes. But uh, how do you work with them as individuals and cultivate leadership within the group? I think the first thing is that I listened and we all listened. Everybody has is welcome to put ideas on the table uh, from whatever level in the organization they are. Our brainstormings are open to from the operations team to the uh, experts, attorneys on, on the specific country, because we believe that there is 
all, there is no idea that is a bad idea. So we want to make sure that everybody feels empowered to just say what they think, give their opinion, give their view. And when you feel heard and when you see that some of your ideas are being implemented, regardless of where you land in the, in the uh, structure of the organization, you start feeling like a leader. You start feeling empowered. And then you start bringing more ideas to the table. And the next time you ask and you say, hey, uh, I kind of want to be part of this meeting. That is something also, that is also something that for me has been important. Nobody is, uh, all our meetings are open. They are no meetings just for a group of people. If you want to join a meeting, the calendar is open. You just have to say, I want to join this meeting because I want to learn, because I want to know. All the meetings are open. And I think that that also helps us for people to stand up and say, you know, maybe I would like to lead a little bit of this work. I actually have seen that we have done this work and in this specific country. And I had some ideas that they would like to implement. And my answer is like, sure, let's do it. It sounds like that does two things. When I think about um, the meetings I wished I was part of, and then admittedly the meetings, I'm like, no, let's keep this closed. It's usually driven by some kind of um, fear of exposure and or a desire for increased transparency. Um, And that it sounds like what you're doing is saying none of us have anything to hide. It's a safe place. We're all grown-ups here and we can deal with whatever we're hearing? I think that that is, you just got to, to for me, the, the core of this. We are all grown-ups here. <laughs> I, think that I that want the t-shirt that says we're all grown-ups. <laughs> that is so true. We just, I feel this in so many places. Uh, uh, people who are not with big titles are not treated as grown-up, are treated as children. Like, I believe that we work, everybody on my team is a grown-up. They is here because they want to be here, uh, that they know what are the responsibilities, that they know what they need to do, and that they don't need any babysitting, that they are responsible enough to know that if they are in a meeting that has like sensitive topics, that they know that they cannot say anything about it later on. And we're making sure this clear outside the organization and that they are also smart enough and look at their calendar and say, hey, I would like to be in every meeting, but that will not be responsible because I have this big to-do list. So treating people like grownups is something that goes so far (laughs) versus treating people like if we were like little babies and many times in very hierarchical organizations, many managers try to treat us like if we needed very close supervision when sometimes the only thing that we need is to let us be and grow. And probably also to give us the understand the context in which we're working, which happens when you let people listen. Exactly. some people would say, you know, the more people in the room, the more voices, the less efficient mm-hmm. it is. You've got no shortage of urgent things to do. <laughs> um, talk to me about the impact of having that kind of inclusive dialogue with your team and welcome, welcoming everyone in. Where does it enrich? Where does it slow down? How do you mm-hmm. integrate that into the overall need to make sure things are moving quickly? I think that one of the main um, um, concerns when people hear this type of workplace is they believe that we are disorganized. 
And that is not true. We're extremely organized. And that is the only way to have efficient brainstormings and efficient conversations. We are excellent on time management. And we, in each discussion, say, okay, we are going to have one hour. We were going to hear everybody. And we are going to, if we have to time conversations or time interventions, we do. If we need to extend time, we, we do. But at the end of that brainstorm, we need to achieve a goal. We don't start a meeting without knowing what is the objective of the meeting. What are we trying to achieve today? So keeping organization across the, um, the organi- across the organization is fundamental for us to be able to be successful in this type of work. Um, it doesn't work if we just keep everything loose. It's very important to be very clear what is objective of each brainstorming. And also that's why there is a consensus by default. I think the part of um, being a leader, it also it also means to assume your own responsibility. And I think that many times leaders don't want to make decisions and that is a mistake. <laughs> I am very comfortable making decisions. Okay, so with as inclusive as the room is mm-hmm. um, and as welcoming, uh, inclusive in that real way of you want to hear everyone's voice mm-hmm. and you make space for it. Um, you're both bringing structure and organization to how all of these things happen because, you know, time matters. Yes. Um, and then at the end of the day, as the leader, you're comfortable making the decision and making and the hard call. Absolutely. And sometimes my decision is finding that consensus. I take a consensus. I think a little bit of here, a little bit of thing there. And I build something where we all feel comfortable. But I think that many times leaders just make the mistake of don't want to assume the responsibility. And sometimes you have to. And sometimes you have to make the hard choice. And sometimes you have to step up and and say, look, I think that this is the way to go. And I will assume the consequences of it. And I am not going to blame any of you because this is being my call. And this is what I believe is right in this moment. And, uh, And then if you make a mistake, you also have to go back to the team and say, hey, it was my fault. I made the call. But being comfortable with you deciding the, the is your call and your decision. And the, at the same time, you need to assume that responsibility if something goes wrong. I think there is an instrumental part of leadership. And that is just something that um, sometimes it just doesn't work uh, when, you know, when there is this fear of making mistakes. And I think the leaders many times believe that because they are the leaders, they need to be always right. And I don't believe that that is leadership. Leadership is recognizing when you are wrong. Leadership is feeling comfortable when you make mistakes. And, and, and I think it's more important to act than to actually don't act and just let things happen. You need to be able to make decisions quickly and fast with the best information that you can have at that moment if you really want to create impact. So, Pella, what you're describing is you, know, you can see that you are a leader who is courageous, who has clarity, and who's also bringing compassion both to the subject of your work and the process mm-hmm. of doing the work itself. And that, unfortunately, this is not common in the world that we live in, <laughs> particularly is, no. with communities of um, largely women employees and women leaders. How did you learn to lead this way? Who mentored you? How did you learn to do this? I think there is a combination of being the oldest sister of uh, four mm. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, having in my family very strong personalities. So I think that I cultivate a lot of the skills there. Um, but I did have two mentors. One was um, in, in college. I have a professor, Marcela Briseño, who really uh, was a different type of professor of the ones that you will have in law school. You know, she was different. She was unique. And and she saw in me something um, and 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 she believed in me from the beginning. And uh, even though, because I came from a high school, I, I went to a high school in um, uh, isolated part of Colombia. There was a public high school, not with the best hardcore skills. So when I arrived to, to law school, I had a lot of raw talent that I didn't have some of the hardest skills, but she saw my raw talent. And she just worked with me in building some of those hardest skills that were so important to succeed. And I will always be thankful for her. And then my first boss in the United States, um, Jean Kelleher, uh, uh, she just was a woman. They did it all in a beautiful, amazing way. And I still admire her so much. And she also believed in me in that moment and, and cultivated. But honestly, I also have learned most of these to see in my partners on the ground. Morena Herrera is one of the biggest leaders of, of women's rights in El Salvador, who is a dear friend. And, and she has an organization that, that has 95 uh, uh, small groups all over the country. And, that, and she managed each of them without her hierarchical structure. She's recreating the concept. So learning from her and learning at different ways in which some of these ground organizations in La Campaña in Argentina, Marta Lanis, who was a woman who this, La Campaña was a group of over a thousand women and they will make decisions collectively. It was a nightmare in many parts, but, <laughs> but at the same time was beautiful. So those experiences has really been very important for me to decide um, that we needed to create something different in order to be successful. So, Paula, it sounds like you've had the benefit of the kind of direct mentor who found you as an emerging talent and schooled you, making sure you had the real skills that you needed, mm -hmm. and that you've also benefited from having role models who could show you other ways of doing things over time. Absolutely. And uh, and also I grow from my team all the time. Uh, um, it's incredible. Sometimes I get surprised at that level of ideas that, that when you let people dream, they just shine. They just grow so much. And it's just pa so beautiful. Paula, in the midst of talking about such important and challenging things, you've helped us dream and see <laughs> that there's different ways to lead and ways to hold on to hope. I can't thank you enough for the work you're doing and for joining us today. If people want to know more about you or support the work you're doing, where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter at uh, P-A-U-A-V-I-L-G. And that is my handle. And also at lawek.org. Paula, thank you so much for everything you're doing. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have a question about anything you heard, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Follow us on Twitter at SXM Business and download our podcast wherever you get yours. Just search for Women at Work. Thanks as always to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Chris Tukes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 